Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Uh, let's see, turn to the book of Ruth. Mr. Ian Bars is going to be the reader today. Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that, saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Good morning. We are uh, continuing in Ruth this morning. Thank you, Ian, for reading for us and worship team for leading us. It's a beautiful day out there, isn't it? Beautiful June day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Ruth and uh, how you speak to us here and the message, um, one message and many messages you have for us. Uh, messages about hope, about Jesus, about the reality of the struggle, and so much more. Uh, I want to ask this morning that you would be our teacher. Uh, use this frail vessel to, uh, to speak e words of eternal life, words of eternal hope, timeless truth to your people this morning, whether they're here in this room or catching us uh, online. I just pray that you would uh, cause, Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer, we ask this. Amen. Over the last year or so, a new term has uh, taken hold in the business world. Uh, maybe you've heard about this or read about it. The term is quiet quitting. 
quiet quitting. Uh, the term quiet quitting is uh, a little misleading, actually, and I say that because quiet quitting does not actually involve quitting. You're not actually quitting your job. It doesn't mean you turn in your resignation letter. Uh, instead, quiet quitting means to do the bare minimum for the job. You do the bare minimum. Uh, one business website describes it this way. Quiet quitting means to put in no more time, effort, or enthusiasm than is absolutely necessary. Just do the bare minimum. And so someone who quiet quits, uh, they, uh, that person does just enough to stay on the payroll and keep drawing a check, but no more. Nothing extra. That, that's what quiet quitting is. And there's a lot of theories for why this has become kind of a problem in the workplace. A lot of theories on why people are doing this. Uh, Some people blame the pandemic, right? Uh, Some blame social media. Some blame poor parenting. Uh, But the, the most common explanation is that people are just worn out. They're just worn out. The last few years have been especially hard, right? And a lot tough in a lot of workplaces for different reasons. And a lot of workers, the stories say, are just burned out. It's kind of a, a societal burnout. People are, are frustrated. Workers are exhausted. Uh, they don't have any extra to give. That's why they're not giving any extra. They didn't have quiet quitting in Bible times. But if they did, I think Naomi would have jumped on the bandwagon. I think she would have had every reason. If anyone ever had a right to feel worn out by life and beaten down by their circumstances, it was the woman we meet in the first chapter of Ruth. It was this woman named Naomi. Last week, we started a a new series in Ruth. And as I said, we're kind of looking at it for the the times when I'm in the pulpit this summer. And uh, we did the first uh, five verses last weekend. And when we left off at the end of verse five, uh, we saw how Naomi had lost everything. This woman that we meet, is she had lost everything. Uh, she lost her home when her family had to move from Bethlehem to Moab to this foreign territory to find food. She lost her home. Then she lost her husband when he died soon after they got there. And then a few years later, she lost not one, but both of her sons. They both died uh, as well. And so for a woman living in that ancient culture, she, she's lost everything. Right? By the end of verse 5, Naomi has lost everything. Now, as we pick up our story in verse 6, we see what happens next. Right? We see what Naomi does next. And we learn something very important about Naomi. We learn that she's a strong woman. I think she's a strong woman. I say that because Naomi didn't quit. She didn't quit when she lost everything. Instead, she took action. She took some action. And so we're going to look today at what she did next. We're going to look at Naomi's next move, but we're not going to really focus so much on what Naomi's doing. This isn't a sermon about Naomi. We're going to focus on what God is doing. So we're not going to focus on Naomi's actions as much as we are on God's actions, because God is moving in this passage as well. He's also moving. He's, it's behind the scenes. A lot of his movement is behind the scenes. Uh, but the Lord is working, and not just working, but working for good. That's what we see here in this, in this text and really in this book. I told you last week it's one of the big themes of this letter, of this, of this book, this story, is the sovereignty of God. So God is working. Now, there's a key word. There's a key word in the book of Ruth that helps us understand this. When we talk about God is working, there's a key word. It's actually only used three times. The word is used three times in the book of Ruth, but each one comes at a key point in the story. So each each occurrence of this word comes at a key juncture. And the word I'm thinking of is, is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that's often translated as grace 
or kindness or loving kindness sometimes. And, and the word is, I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew today. The word is chesed. Chesed. It's, it's, it's basically the Old Testament equivalent of that New Testament word agape that people will talk about. Chesed is the word. C-H-E-S-E-D, if you want to try to spell it in English. Chesed. Uh, chesed is one of the key concepts in this book. It's very, very important because it unlocks what's, what God is doing. It unlocks the activities of God. So what is it? What, what is chesed? It sounds like you're choking on a pretzel. What is, what is chesed? Well, chesed in, is the Hebrew word that describes God's faithful love. So it's not just kind of romance love or filial love or brotherly love. It is, it is God's faithful love. Now, human beings can show this kind of love, and you will see that in, in some texts, and when you do, a lot of times it'll be translated as something like kindness. But when God is the one who's expressing this, uh, the, the word has this stronger sense because it actually takes on the sense of covenant. This is God's covenant-making love. This is his covenantal love. And so you'll see different translations. It's lo- you know, loving faithfulness, uh, loving kindness. I said that before. Uh, I'm going to talk today in terms of faithful love. That's really at the heart of this book and the heart of today's text. One of, the, one of the three occurrences will occur in this text. It's God's faithful love. All of that sets us up our, for our main lesson. And what I want to talk about today is quite simply that the Lord never quits. That's what it means when we say uh, that, that he has chesed for his people. The Lord never quits on his people, even when we quit on him. The Lord never quits on us, even when we quit on him. And that's the, 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 the really good news in that part. Not only does he not quit on us, but even when we uh, lose our way, he, he still doesn't. He still holds on to us. So I want to take our time this morning to uh, work through this next part in the story of Ruth and Naomi, their, their story. And as we go along, I want to show you three ways. I want to point out three ways the Lord shows his faithful love in this text And we'll see, we'll start with Naomi's story. We'll see how he's faithful to Naomi, and he shows his love to her. But then all three are are a template for how he he shows his love to us as well. So three ways we see the Lord's faithful love in this text. Number one, the first way the Lord shows his faithful love is his provision. His provision. And we see this specifically uh, in this text in the way God provides food for his people back in Judah. Right? A lot of times we just kind of move past this detail in this story if we're reading through Ruth, but I think it's an important one because it sets the context for how God de- deals with the world. So it's verses 6 and 7. Let me read them again. It says, Then she arose, and the she, of course, is Naomi, who we were just talking about at the last paragraph. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So verse 6 makes this statement. It says that the Lord uh, had visited his people, talking about those back in, in Judah, back in Bethlehem, where Naomi and her husband were from. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. And you'll remember there was a famine there. So the famine got so bad that Elimelech felt like he had to move his whole family to this foreign country. So it was bad. But then the Lord intervened. And it says he visited them. So the Lord visited. Uh, and, and the picture of that word, it means the same thing to us as it would mean to them. When, you know, it's not just kind of knocking on the door, passing out some literature, and I'm going to leave. Uh, it's a visit. He, he, he pays special. If somebody visits you, they're going to pay special attention to you. They're going to give you their attention. And that's what God does uh, here. He gives his attention to his people. 
Uh, he visits them. Now, sometimes in Scripture, when, when this term is used, God visits his people to bring judgment. You will see plenty of texts like that, especially in the prophets. God will visit sometimes to bring uh, judgment that is deserved because of rebellion. Uh, but in this instance, and in a lot of other instances, the Lord will visit his people to bring grace. And, and that is what he, he did here, apparently, back in the land of Judah, back in Bethlehem. He visited his people, and he, he provided for them. He gave them grace. The word's not used yet, but he gave them chesed. He showed his chesed. He gave them grace. And what's more, here's the never quit part. He does this in our story, even though there's nothing here to tell us that they had repented. Right? And remember, this is set in the period of the judges, a pretty morally bleak period back in Israel. Right? It's kind of a dark time. Uh, we might expect that you'd read something like, and they repented of their sin, and so the Lord visited them and brought them food. But there's nothing like that. The text is silent. Uh, Bethlehem is silent in this text. There's nothing here to tell us that they deserved his grace or that they deserved to have him give them food. Right? It, it's, it's common grace. It's the Lord showing his loving faithfulness. Uh, it reminds us of what Jesus will say much later, a thousand years later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, your father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Right? The sun came up this morning for all of us, Wicked, the wickedest people on the planet and the, the, those who love the Lord. The sun equally came up, every human being. Right? And so even when human beings quit on the Lord, those rebellious ones, the Lord is gracious to us anyway. And if we think about it, we would say the same thing in our own lives. Right? We would say the same. You know, we, we see it and we, we like to talk about two kinds of grace right? when we get theological about it. We'll talk about common grace and special grace. Uh, right? We see it in common grace, the breath in our lungs, the heart that keeps beating, that sun that came up today, the, the ground that yields its crops. Right? It's going to grow whether you're a really godly man or you're not. Uh, the ground yields its crops, the sun keeps coming up, the spring follows winter. All of these are examples of, of God's provision. They're, they're examples. We tend to take them for granted, but they're examples of his, his faithful love in the world. And then where we, we see it even more obviously is, is in his special grace, right? which is what the Bible tends to focus on more. And so we have a verse like 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Right? So even before we were ever coming to him, he, he loved us. He, 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 we had quit on him even before we went into it, but he wasn't quitting on us. Romans 5, 8 is another one. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's faithful love, and it's a form of provision. The Lord provides for us when we don't do anything to deserve his provision. So we see that. that that's there in this text. Now, let's, let's get Naomi moved along in her story here. So, so she hears about this, right? She, and we don't know how she hears about it, if it's a, you know, rumors come or traders bring news, I don't know. But she gets news that things are better now. Things are better now back in Bethlehem where she's from. And so verse 7 says that she decides to go back, right? There's nothing to keep her in, in, in Moab. She's a woman of action. And so she decides to return. I'm going to go back to my home, to my, my homeland in Bethlehem. However, she doesn't go by herself. She doesn't leave by herself. Uh, she takes her household with her, and her household has become these two women, her two daughters-in-law. They would have joined Elimelech's household, uh, even if he had passed already, which it seems like he had, but she would, they would have joined her household. So they are members of her household, so she sets off with the two of them. 
Now, from this point in our text, we just covered 6 and 7, from this point, from verses 8 through 18, uh, the text is broken into three exchanges, right? So if you look at the text, there are three uh, back-and-forth exchanges between uh, Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And there's a lot of talking, although one of the exchanges, there's not talking, but it's three exchanges. So exchange one is verses 8 through 10. Exchange two is verses 11 through 14. And then the third exchange is in verses 15, 16, 17, 18. That's the third one. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover each one of these in order and, and uh, bring the rest of our stuff out here. So exchange number one, right? So here's these three women. They're heading west. You'd have to go west from Moab to get to, to Jerusalem or to, to Bethlehem. So as they're going, as they're heading out, exchange number one is between them. So they don't get very far. They don't get very far at all before Naomi turns to the two younger women who were with her, and she says, you need to go back. You need to go back. We don't know why she didn't tell them this before. It would have been, uh, you know, a lot easier if she had just told them before she left, you, you can't come with me. But it seems like maybe she hoped, or maybe she hadn't thought about it, but you know, maybe she hoped that she could bring them with them, but with her. But for some reason, as she reaches the outskirts of Moab, uh, she starts thinking, maybe she starts thinking about these younger women's future and what, what they're going to find in, in Israel. And she turns to Orpah and she turns to Ruth and she says, go back, go back to your own families, return each one of you to your mother's house. Go back to your mother's house, she says. I want us to notice that she's not angry at them, right? She's she's not angry at them at all. Instead, she actually sends them away with a prayer. She sends them away with a prayer for the Lord's blessing. That's verses 8 and 9. Let me actually read the exchange. So this is exchange number one. But Naomi said to her two two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and the idea is kiss them goodbye. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept. So she, she offers a prayer of blessing on these two women. And there's actually two parts to the prayer, two things, she's, she's, two parts of the blessing. First is chesed. It's chesed. Uh, She prays for them that the Lord will deal kindly with them. And that's our word. That's the Hebrew word, deal kindly. It's the verb form of it rather than the noun. Uh, She prays that he will show kindness to them just as they've shown, because humans can do it too. She has shown, uh, they showed kindness to her and to her sons. She kind of brings them into it as well. You were good wives and you were good daughters-in-law. And now may the Lord deal kindly with you. That's, may he show you his faithful love. That's her first prayer for them. Uh, By the way, this is our first hint in the book of the character of these two women, and especially Ruth, because we're going to pay more attention to Ruth. Orpah's going to disappear from the story after today. Uh, But these are women of character, right? They may be Moabites. Put yourself in the place of a a Hebrew person 3,000 years ago hearing this story. You're going to distrust the Moabites. They've been your historical enemy, right? They're not not your friends. Uh, And and yet these two Moabites are are good women, so good that Ruth is, is saying all these nice things about them, or Naomi is saying all these nice things about them. And so they're they're good daughters-in-law. Naomi clearly loves them. She loves them both. I think that's very clear here. And they loved her. You see that at the end of verse 9, right? And so um, this, that's our first inkling as we're meeting Ruth especially, uh, that this is a woman of character, and she will prove herself to be so as the book unfolds. 
So prayer number one is that the Lord will give you his faithful love. He'll show you his faithful love even as you've shown love to me and my sons. The other part of her prayer is that God will grant them rest in the homes of new husbands. Uh, We focused a, a lot last week on Naomi's desolation, right? I really wanted us to appreciate the depth of her grief last week. But she's not the only one grieving here. She's not the only grieving woman in this story. Orpah lost her husband, and Ruth lost her husband. And yeah, they're younger than Naomi is, but they're dealing with the same trauma, the same grief, the same loss, the same vulnerability in that culture where a, 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 a man was the covering for his wife. They're now vulnerable because they're widows. That's why there's so much in the Bible about protecting widows. It's because they're vulnerable if they don't have a, 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 usually a husband or sometimes a son who's watching out for them. Ruth is, uh, Naomi has lost all of her covering by her sons and fa- uh, husband dying. Uh, Ruth in the same thing is with, with Ruth and Orpah. And so Naomi's concerned for them. I hope it doesn't feel too sexist to people, but she's very concerned for them that the Lord will provide protection and care for them by providing them with new husbands. And so really what, she, what she's praying for them is a new start. And I believe this. When Naomi says go back, she's offering them a fresh start. Go start over. Go back, start over. I hope it goes better for you next time. That's exchange number one. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a very sensible plan to me. It does, uh, from a human perspective, and that's how we at least start, right? Most of us at least start with the human perspective. That makes a lot of sense. Naomi's plan makes a lot of sense. Go back to your Moabite families, where your Moabite fathers can uh, partner you with Moabite husbands, right? Your, Your dads will find you new husbands. It makes a lot of sense. However, that's not what they want to do. That's not their first impulse, right? Verse 10 wraps up the exchange of of the first exchange. Verse 10 says they refused to go. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people, right? So again, the, the attachment here is tight. We're not going back. We're going with you. That's what Orpah and Ruth both say. So that's the first exchange. Uh, Now let's look at the second exchange. And the second exchange introduces us to the the next way we see the Lord's faithful love in this text. Uh, let, Let me read the verses first this time, and then we'll tell you what it is. So I'm picking up in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. So she's already told them once, but they said, no, we're not going. So she's going to push it. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The second way the Lord shows his faithful love in this text is his patience. His patience. We see the Lord's faithful love in the way he is so patient with us. And in this text, we see it with Naomi, but we also see it in our own lives all the time. The Lord is patient with us the same way he's going to be patient with her. For the second time, uh, Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, go back, go back. And this time she isn't quite as nice as she was the first time. So she wasn't angry at first, but I, I think you start to see her emotion uh, go like this a little bit, right? She starts to, it starts to ratchet up. 
Uh, in the first exchange, she prays for them and blesses them, but now she, she talks about her own pain. Right? It's all about her own pain. Uh, Naomi is angry. She's angry and bitter. And she's going to tell us in verse 20 that she's, she is bitter. She'll actually come out and tell us that, and we're going to look at that next week. Uh, but we even see it. Before she says, I'm bitter, uh, she shows us she's bitter here in this second exchange. Uh, she, she starts out, she says, why would you go with me? I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer you, she says. And she's thinking very specifically in terms of the things she's just prayed for them. She's thinking in terms of husbands. She is in no position. What do these women need in that culture? Especially they need husbands. And is Naomi in a position to help them? No. That's what she says. No, I, I, I do not have the ability to help you, she says. I'm too old to get a husband. And even if I did get a husband tonight, she says, she's really kind of emphatic about it. Even if, I, if, even if somebody married me tonight, I'm too old to have children. And even if I had children, they'd have to be sons. And even if they were sons, it would be years before they were ready to get married to you. And, and if all of that happened, by that point, you'd be too old. And she doesn't use exactly those words, but I think that's why she says it. Would you wait all that time? If you, if you waited for me to hypothetically provide sons for you to remarry, That'd be way, way too late for you. And so the way she sketches this out here, she, she sketches a, a hopeless picture. Right? You get, a, you get a, a very clear sense of what's going on inside of Naomi. She feels hopeless. And along with that hopelessness is, and all of this is like different branches of her bitterness. She, she's, she's angry. She's, she's hopeless. A lot of self-pity. Right? You can really see it in what she says. Um, it is exceedingly bitter for me, she says. That's verse 13. My circumstances are so bad. They're so bitter. There's actually, you can make the case um, grammatically that there's a comparison here. She says it's exceedingly bitter for me in the, in the ESV is how it's translated. But you can, could translate this as a comparison, in which case she would be saying it is more bitter for me than it is for you. So, and again, when you start comparing yourself to other people, now we're really getting into the realm of, of hopelessness, bitterness, and so on. Uh, it's more bitter for me, he says, than it is for you. At least you're still young. Uh, you can still make a, a new start, but not me. Not me, Naomi's saying. There's no fresh start for me. But then, as if we needed more, then even more striking still is the fact that it is who she's bitter at. She's bitter at the Lord. He's the one she's mad at, right? She's not blaming, you know, whatever disease it was that took her husband and sons or the war or whatever it was. She's mad at the Lord. The Lord's hand, she says, has gone out against me. The Lord's hand has gone. This is why it's exceedingly bitter for her. The Lord's hand has gone out against her, she says. Uh, in the Bible, when you see that, um, that metaphor, the hand of the Lord, when you see that uh, metaphor, simile, whatever it is, the hand of the Lord, uh, it is a figure of speech for the things the Lord does, right? Because we do things with our hands. And so the Lord's hand is the Lord's actions. It's what the Lord does. She says, the, the Lord is working against me, right? So, so imagine if we were there, we might try to comfort her. We might say, well, hold on, Naomi, don't, don't give up yet. Don't give up, Naomi, don't feel so hopeless. The Lord is at work. The Lord's at work here. If, if we were to say that, she would say, oh, I know the Lord is working. I know the Lord is working. He's working against me. That's what she'd say. He's out to get me. He's got it in for me. There's a tragic irony here, if you think about it, because Naomi believes what you and I are talking about this morning. She believes in the Lord's love. She believes in his faithful love. That's why she can pray that he'll show it to Orpah and to Ruth back in verse 8. 
She believes the Lord is faithful and loving. She just doesn't believe that he loves her. That's where she's at. And so she has a personal problem, not a theological problem. That happens to us sometimes. We, we don't have a theological problem. Our, theology, our theological ducks are all nice in a nice straight line. Uh, but, but the problem is in here and here. It's, it's in our own lives. And that's where Naomi's at, in her own life, in her own, her own insides. At this point, she believes the Lord's hand is against her. Have you ever felt like that? Right? Some, some friend comes along, tries to cheer you up. and She says, hey, the Lord is good all the time. And you say, oh yeah, I know, the Lord's good all the time to other people. God's good to other people. It's just not good to me. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we feel like that. If you've ever gone through that, or maybe even if you're going through something like that right now, I think it's very important to know you're not alone. But that's one of the reasons this little book is here and why I love it so much. Naomi felt that way. Right? Here's this godly woman, great-grandmother to King David. That's how she felt. Job felt that way. Right? It's a much longer book to make kind of the same point, but that's how Job felt. He goes through chapter after chapter about how he feels the same way Naomi feels in these two verses we just looked at. Uh, there's a guy named Asaph in the Psalms. He wrote Psalm 73. Asaph felt that way. It's a little bit of a different angle, but it's the same core issue. The Lord is good to everyone else, but just not to me. Lots of people go through times of that. Even Christians go through times like that. Times when the troubles of life hit us like the waves of a tsunami. And the grief, the sadness, even anger and bitterness uh, feel so overwhelming, we feel like we're going to go under. We're going to drown beneath it emotionally. And, and Ruth reminds us that God's, God's people feel that way sometimes. And yes, even when we're struggling with it, he is still good. Right? He is still good. Because I want to be careful at this point. As we look at Naomi here, <clears throat> we are not saying the following. We're not saying the following right now or next week because we're going to look at the issue of bitterness. I think it's, a, it's an important issue and it's there at the end of this chapter. We are not saying, oh, that terrible Naomi. We are not doing that, right? We're not saying anything like that. For one thing, it's not our place to condemn Naomi. Most importantly, because the text does not condemn Naomi. Not once does the text condemn her. It only reports. It reports what she's going through. It reports what she's dealing with. And so there's no condemnation of Naomi's struggle in this book. So if you're struggling in that way, if anything I said in the last three or four minutes is resonating at all with where you're at right now, please know that this is not condemning for that. In fact, I would argue, I would argue the opposite. What we really see going on here in this book is, is that the Lord is patient. He is so patient with her, right? We will always say, you know, go ahead and ask God your questions. He can handle them. Same thing. It's the same concept here. He's patient with her. He's bearing with Naomi's weaknesses. He doesn't just write her off, right? It would be very tempting to just write her off. Yeah, yeah, fine. That's how you want to be. I'll go find somebody else to, to bring forth the king from, you know? He doesn't do that at all. Instead, what does he do? He just keeps providing he keeps taking care of her, which is really the, the rest of the story. He's going to do exactly what she feels he isn't doing for her. He's going to provide for her. He's going to take care of her. Take care of her. He's not done with her. He's not done with her. He's not going to punish her. Instead, he's going to bless her. And the blessing that she's going to see as the book unfolds is not payback. Right? It's not payback for all her troubles. It's his own faithful love. It's an expression of his own love. And so as we hover over Naomi here after the second exchange, uh, no, Naomi's just about quit. <laughs> She's just about quit on the Lord, but the Lord has not quit on Naomi. He's still holding fast to her. He's patient with her. 
So in verse 14, uh, we move along. We, we find out that the result of the second exchange is that Orpah says, okay, you're right. Now, Orpah decides to go. She's, she's, uh, she's brokenhearted. Right? There's the weeping again. She's, she doesn't feel good about it. But uh, she kisses her mother-in-law, it says, and that's the kiss goodbye, and she leaves. Orpah heads back to Moab. Ruth, however, responds differently. And that brings us to the third uh, way we see the Lord's faithful love. Uh, we also see his, his faithful love in his people. Right? The Lord shows his faithful love in and through his people. Now, in this text, he's going to do that through Ruth. I believe I said last week that Ruth is a, is a classic example in this text of God's, uh, of, of his love, of his, of his um, radical, I think I might have used the word, his, his, his overwhelming love, you might say. Uh, Ruth is going gonna, is gonna to treat Naomi that way, right? She is a living manifestation in this book to Naomi, not of her own love, but rather she is a picture of the Lord's love. That's how Ruth is going to function here in chapter 1. So, so Orpah leaves, right? Orpah leaves, Ruth stays. And she doesn't just stay. Look at what it says. She clung, right? She grabbed a hold of her. <laughs> it's like that. She clung to, to Naomi. Uh, the word means hold on tight, right? So I'm not letting you go. You're going to have to wrench my arms out from around your ankles is, 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 is the picture here. But that word, cling, uh, it's more than just holding on physically. There's also a, there's a covenantal sense to it. Uh, I'll tell you where else this word is used. Another key passage where this word is used. It's way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Same exact word, same word. Right, so it's more than just tying yourself to somebody. Right? It's, it's the expression of a commitment. When a husband and wife enter into that marriage covenant, it's much more than just a physical relationship. It is a covenantal joining of their lives to one another. And so when the text tells us that Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, there's overtures of that, <clears throat> especially when Ruth then goes on to make what is basically a covenant in the next part we're going to look at here. Because that's what you get in the third exchange. Uh, exchange number three begins in verse 15. And she said, the she being Naomi, look, behold, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You do the same, right? Return after your sister-in-law, right? So Orpah's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. The way I read this, Naomi is quitting on Ruth. Naomi quits on Ruth in that verse, and she does it a couple of different ways. First of all, she is, she is, she's kind of rude at this point, right? She started out with blessing, and then she, you got her bitterness in exchange number two. Uh, now in exchange number three, she's, she's downright rude to this young woman. Uh, your people, she says. Right? Go back to your people. She, she does it through the sister-in-law, but the, the implication is very clear. Go back to your people. That's, that's more than go back to your mother's house, which is what she said in verse 8. Now it's ethnic. Right? I told you there are even hints of racism and immigration in this book. Here's, here's I think, it's just a hint. We won't spend much time on it. But you know, she's, you're the other. You're a Moabite, Ruth. Go away. Right? You're, you go back to your people, she says. And then, and then it gets worse. She also tries to send Ruth back to her gods. Right? So how, how, how hurting is Naomi? The answer is a lot. Right, look, your sister-in-law is going back to the Moabite gods. You go with her. This is stunning. 
Right? For someone we consider a biblical hero, this is a stunning thing. Naomi becomes an anti-evangelist. Right? Instead of telling Ruth to leave her Moabite gods and come over, you know, come with us to Israel. We got the tabernacle, the sacrifices, we got Yahweh, the only true God. She's basically saying, no, go back to your idols. Go back to your little statues and your balls and whatever else they're worshiping over there. It's hard to get into her head. It's hard to see what her motives are. Some commentators actually try to defend Naomi at this point. And they say, well, she's just doing what's best for Ruth. Um, others say, no, this is just full throttle bitterness. Whatever her motives are, the net effect is that Naomi has given up on, on Ruth. At this point, Naomi is giving up on Ruth. Right? Ruth clings to her and says, I'm going with you. Naomi gives her um, a verbal shove. I don't think she really pushed her. At least it doesn't say she did. But verbally, she says, you go away. Go back. Get away. That leads to one of the best examples of chesed in the whole Bible. Or at least one of the best human examples. God gives far better ones. But it's one of the best human examples of the kind of faithful love God has for his people. Uh, pick up in verse 16. But Ruth said, so she just got the go away from her mother-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. At every point where Naomi tries to push Ruth away, Ruth responds with godlike love. She responds with faithful love. The language is covenantal, just like God binds himself to his people in covenant. Ruth is going to bind herself to Naomi in covenant. Right? And it's, it's this whole idea of, of not quitting, even when the other one is quitting. Naomi says, return to Moab. Ruth says, don't tell me to return. Don't tell me to leave. Naomi says, go away. Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Naomi says, go back to your mother's house. Your mother's house. Ruth says, your house is my house. Right? You're my mother is really what she's saying. Uh, Naomi says, go back to your people. Ruth says, your people are my people. Naomi says, go back to your gods. Ruth says, your God will be my God. And then to prove she means all of it, she swears an oath. Right? She takes an oath. We actually had to talk about this recently in, in Hebrews when we talked about oath-keeping. The thing about oath-keeping is that it's done under the authority of a God. Right? Even, even today, when people like, refuse to swear in a Bible or something, they're like, I just swear by myself. You're, there's your God. There's yourself. Oaths are taken under the authority of a God, whatever that God happens to be to you. And so now Ruth's going to swear an oath under the authority of a God, but it's not her old God's. She doesn't swear by Molech. She swears by Yahweh. May Yahweh, may the Lord deal with me severely if ever I go back on this commitment that I'm making to you today. She, she binds herself with an oath in a covenant to Naomi. Some people uh, read this text and they ask if Ruth gets saved at this point. All right, is this the point where Ruth becomes a believer? Is this where Ruth commits her life to the Lord? Um, some commentators take it that way, and, and it is definitely a beautiful description, right? I know a lot of us probably love that passage, and that your God will be my God. It's a very, very beautiful description of, uh, of, of the transformation of conversion. The problem, though, is that that's not the point of the story, right? The, the point of this part of the story is not that Ruth makes a big commitment to the Lord, and then out of her commitment to the Lord, she commits herself to Naomi, if you trace the text, it actually flips those. First, she makes her commitment to Naomi. 
Right? She binds herself in covenant to Naomi, and then you hear these, all these other covenants, right? Now, personally, I think Ruth had probably come to believe in Yahweh back when Malon was still alive. Who knows her backstory? We have no idea. But the emphasis here isn't on Ruth's faith as much as it is on Ruth's love for Naomi. She is a picture here, a living picture of God's covenantal, faithful, I'm never going to quit on you, even if you quit on me, kind of love. That's what Ruth shows to Naomi. And that's what the Lord shows to us, right? That's where we land this morning. That's how the Lord loves us, right? We bring it to Christ. Let's go straight to Jesus. Jesus refuses to quit on us, even when we quit on him. And the place where we see that most clearly is the cross, right? The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's faithful love. I I read the verse before, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Wow, we were still sinners. Long before we ever did anything that had any kind of merit or, or holiness to offer to him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus gave his own life. For us, at a time when uh, we as an entire race, not just individuals, but that too, but the, the entire race were arrayed against him as enemies. That's, if you want a picture of God's love, it, there it is. You know, Ruth gives it to us in a person, but there it is. It's, it's in Christ's love. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to enact that with the Lord's Supper. We're actually going to uh, share the Lord's Supper together and remember this faithful love, this covenantal, uh, never going to quit on you, even if you quit on me kind of love. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much that you, um, that you are like this. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are loving. We thank you that those two come together in this Uh, faithful love, this love that goes beyond our understanding, that sees past our sins and our brokenness and our rebellion and reaches out to us and keeps reaching out to us. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for your provision for us, uh, your patience with our frailty. We thank you for the people you use uh, in our lives to show this love. Sometimes you do it directly in in so many ways we can talk about, but sometimes it's through... uh, the people who, who enact this to us, just like Ruth enacted it for, her, for Naomi. And so we thank you for that. We embrace that. We accept that. And I pray that you would cause it to take deep root in our souls because uh, we have a hard time believing it sometimes, Lord. The world we live in doesn't work that way. We've got to earn our keep and, and make our way, but not with you. And so I pray you'd cause that reality, that eternal, timeless reality to take deep root in each one of our souls. We turn now to your table, Lord. We do give thanks for our Savior, Jesus. We thank you uh, for the cross. Lord, I want to take some time here and to slow down and pause and ask you to bring to mind any sin uh, that we need to confess. If there's anyone here, Lord, who has never confessed at all and come to you, I pray that you would draw that person to yourself. If there's anyone here, Lord, and far more... Far more of us are going to be in this category where we have just taken uh, sin lightly lately. We haven't kept short accounts. Maybe we've tolerated some things in our lives that we're saved, we're, we're forgiven, we're born again, but we have not been cooperating with your process of sanctification. I pray you'd bring those things to mind, that we might even, uh, even now confess those to you and be done with them. So we just invite you right now, Holy Spirit, to, to show us anything we need to confess to you.